I'm Sophie Frost. This is The Hidden Constellation. For the past year, I've been travelling the length and breadth of England, visiting the museums that make up the Science Museum Group, talking with staff and volunteers about the role of technology in their everyday working lives. We will shortly be arriving at Bradford Interchange. If you are leaving the train here, mind the gap between the train and platform edge. I've been speaking with individuals across the workforce at Science Museum Group to understand the new, hidden, distributed, legacy and collective forms of digital work taking place across this vast and eclectic group of science and technology museums. The Hidden Constellation explores the future of work in museums, presenting the Science Museum Group as a case study of a museum service thinking about the value and impact of technology in the work that it does. This is the first of two episodes where I am going to chart the hidden digital labour that happens across a museum service like Science Museum Group. What do I mean by hidden? Time and again in the making of this podcast, I heard staff referring to those who worked in the archives, in collections cataloguing, in data management and in documentation as the unsung heroes of the museum, as those whose work was frequently hidden from the more public-facing element of the group. It's something that we've been very explicitly bringing to the surface at the sort of highest levels of governance. So, you know, the trustees responsible for collections and research we've presented to, and we have shown them a diagram of an iceberg, and we've shown them that the bit that sits above the iceberg is our blogs and our videos and our stories and the um, well-packaged, well-curated visit visibly beautiful and engaging content that we're used to producing as a museum and that we're known for and underneath that iceberg are research and processes and governance and systems and data and all of the things that underpin creating any digital content it it is a very live conversation well it's been going on for at least um, a couple of years in the context of one collection to really bring that Um, that disparity out and to remind people that without the painstaking work of curators and colleagues in collection services we don't have engaging digital content Um, It feels like we've got all the benefits of rapid digitisation but the quality feels great too yeah. And so, and so, you know, you know, and so yeah, so these people are like totally the unsung heroes of all of this work. What John and Jessica help us see here is that digital technologies are enabling previously hidden aspects of Science Museum Group's collection to be made visible. But the work involved in doing this, this visualisation work, remains fundamentally hidden. Here's Jack Kirby describing the myriad systems that many staff work with to arrange and manage the group's collections. We have an object database, we have an image database that holds all the images that you see on collections online. We have a separate archive database, which is probably a bad idea, but we do. Um, and so to produce, the, um, to, to produce the online collection you see, we need to take information from all of those digital buckets, objects, images, archives, pull them through the enterprise service bus into another hidden bit of technology, the CIIM, it's called, um, I can't think what it sounds for, but it's it's an externally provided product, which then sorts all of that data Mm -hmm. and then presents it online. 
It took a long time to uncover exactly what hidden digital work actually looks like in the museum context, and it's what I aim to describe in What Follows. My foundation point in this series is the idea that museum tech work is an emergent form of labour that needs further exploration. In sociologist Gina Neff's words... It doesn't have the same settled social norms that factory labour or financial labour have had in the past. As such, there are aspects of this new kind of work that remain hidden from view and underexplored and sometimes undervalued within the museum. Someone pivotal to me in developing a better understanding of hidden digital labour is artist, writer and activist Gregory Shillette who, in his 2011 book Dark Matter, describes the secret glut of artists, cultural workers and producers that make up the art world. It was Shillette who first introduced me to the idea of the missing and invisible mass of workers, which make up the foundation of the cultural sector. He states that the presence or absence of a vast zone of cultural activity can no longer be ignored. Applying Shillette's ideas to the museum space helps me suggest that a significant part of the digital labour involved in collections management at museums can similarly be understood as carried out by a shadow archive of workers, the value of their labour needing further celebration and acknowledgement. It could be suggested that, in the context of the Science Museum group, these are the human cogs that help the museum keep turning, help it continue to be a custodian of our country's history of technology, science, maths and engineering. In short, it is the hidden digital labour of these museum workers, and volunteers too, that ensures the institution's mission to grow science capital continues to be met. Over this two-part episode, I'll try to understand why sometimes this kind of work can involve a high degree of emotional labour, why sometimes, although not always, it can be gendered, and why, sometimes, hidden digital expertise is subject to different kinds of valuation within the museum complex. It's that hidden, that hidden labour, I think, that you know, we've been talking about. Those hidden people who do so much to make sure that this place still rotates on its axis... But if you try to describe what they did or you told someone their job, they likely wouldn't immediately know what you were talking about or why it mattered. But without them, we'd be lost in the sea of of stuff and nothing would get done. And legally, we'd probably be in a lot of hot water as well based on the types of things that they do. So, yeah, it's, it's a kind of curious divide in terms of what it is. That's Dr Sophie Vora, Research Associate at the National Railway Museum in York. We're going to spend most of this two-part episode with staff and volunteers based at the National Railway Museum, or NRM, as I found this museum to be particularly fertile ground for uncovering the phenomenon of hidden digital labour across the Science Museum group more generally. A short walk from York Station, NRM tells the story of rail transport in Britain and its impact on society. Having opened in a former locomotive roundhouse in 1975, NRM houses several historically significant railway vehicles as well as search engine, an extremely comprehensive archive and research facility, the only archive in the group so far accredited by the UK Archive Service Accreditation Partnership. The team at NRM are currently working hard towards Vision 2025, a £55 million redevelopment and transformation project for the museum as well as locomotion in Shildon, part of a five-year journey to become the world's railway museum. 
In what follows, I'll be reflecting on this idea of hidden digital labour from two separate, unique but interlinked angles. The hidden digital labour involved in working with a technology archive, such as the one we find at NRM, and the hidden digital labour involved in collections data management and documentation across all the museums in the group. Let's begin by hearing from Alison Kay, Archives Manager at NRM, as she takes us around the collection stores at Search Engine, which is, and I quote Alison here, as heavy as the flying Scotsman with tender. I understand that not everyone listening to this might be up on their railway history. The Flying Scotsman is a celebrated express passenger train that travelled between Edinburgh and London, first built in 1862. In other words, the archival collection at Search Engine weighs 180 tonnes and takes up over 400 cubic metres in space. The sound quality is a bit patchy in my chat with Alison, mainly because we were going through a series of enormous storerooms full of packed boxes replete with electric generators. But please bear with us. We begin to get a picture of the complexity of Alison's job at Search Engine and the emotional aspect of working with an archive and a set of stakeholders with as complex a range of requirements as the one at NRM. In fact, the engineering in these two stores... Um, there's over a million engineering drawings. Um, I don't like it this way. Yeah, and they're all in these So they're really, really well documented. Um, this is where it gets interesting, actually. They're really well documented in that we have volunteer groups coming in for the last 30 years or something, and they would, I'll show you, um, they would have a sheet, a sheet of paper mm-hmm. and then they transcribe all the information from each drawing onto the spreadsheet and we put all those PDF lists on our website. So I've seen those. Yeah, so SMG um, is all about collections online and our systems. This is like a thing that we're doing that is not integrated into those systems. Mm. Um, and we wouldn't re- really add to them now. We'd want mm. to do stuff that's in collections online and in the rest. Of the, but this is we we've done Google Analytics before on how many people looked at the pages with all the engineering drawing PDFs on, and it was more than any other part of our site, more than our AdLib site or anything, because there is just this core group of people that come and see them all the time and they request copies. I think that most of our users who come in to search engine. And we have a much wider audience than that online and on mm. the museum floor who engage with our archives without even realising that they're engaging because they're integrated so much into display that it would be hard to tell that what you're looking at actually came from the archives in the first mm-hmm. place. And we have in the past put some of our drawing collections on our catalogue systems and people have found it so hard to use, including the assistants behind the mm. desk, that they still use the PDF things because they're very museum very archive and these guys are modelers, engineers and they're not interested, I don't think, in complicated structures or museum language. They just want to find a drawing of that screw or that thing that they need to fix or mm-hmm. that they need to model mm-hmm. on their locomotive. So we need so to find a way of making those two things work together. Yeah. Um, I think it'd be quite easy to just say, I'll just stick them all on clutches on my They'll love it, they'll love it. But when you speak to the guy, because I don't really interact with people, I'm mostly back of house. If you say that to the guys behind the desk, they're just like, it'd be a 
disaster because our core users who are looking at these technical records won't be able to use them. But they're only a small usership, but they're our kind of most vocal people who are in here. Yeah. Um, and then there's everybody else. And I, yeah, I, the way that I'm sort of managing it at the moment is we're catering for them really well with these PDF lists. We have loads of people using them. They look, they like them. It's working fine. Why mess with it? Let's just keep it how it is. Yeah. Because there's other parts of the collection that we could be integrating into all the SMG projects that would work a lot better until we can find a compromise, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. What I began to see from talking with Alison is that there are three overlapping elements, three overlapping and complex areas of her work with the archive and its communities that she must maintain in ongoing balance. The first is the sheer abundance of objects and drawings at Search Engine. For oh. example, now I'm going to make myself sound really bad here. Oh. I actually don't know what's in those. They've never been surveyed. Material transfer from... I mean, what is this? I don't know. Um, because we haven't time. I, we've never surveyed any of this. Um, Signalling. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, small misgut sessions. There could be anything in there. Um, and there could... <laughs> be something amazing in there that's like um i don't know the, the diary of the person who first imagined the flying scotsman or something i mean it's unlikely but it could be it could be because we just don't we just don't know um and one of the things at the moment up to about 50 percent of my time is spent on acquiring new stuff um, but in the past we've acquired things and it's like best way I can describe it is you know like if you don't think you've got any string but you know there's some string in your house but you're just like oh my god I just can't afford to have a string I'm just going to buy some more and then you move house and you realise that you've got like 25 balls of string from every time you went to the shop this is what we've done we've collected stuff thinking oh we don't have it but not looks where we don't know what's there I think it's about 3,000 archives um, in the archive from different places the second element of Alison's work is dealing with an unwieldy computer legacy, comprising a difficult and not often interoperable range of digital systems that have been used in the past, and in some cases continue to be used, to catalogue and document these objects and drawings. In computing, the term legacy system has a specific meaning, referring to an old method, technology, computer system or application programme that is outdated but still in use. Later in this series, we'll be exploring in more detail how this idea of legacy impacts digital labour across the group. For now, we can begin to see how legacy systems contribute to a complex workload for Alison and her team. So we digitise and demand, and we digitise most of our drawings for customer orders externally. Right. So we've got a huge bank of digitised engineering drawings that are not to the standard that you would want to use on collections online because we had no in, in-house way of copying them and we needed we need to provide copies for research purposes we can charge them for it then then we do it but we've been doing it in this sort of off the side way which definitely needs to be integrated into what the groups do because we have this bank of black and white images of coil springs or undercarriages of some weird vehicle somewhere that someone might want eventually but they're on our drives but then they're not a priority because they've been driven by quite often personal projects that are not a priority for us. The other difficulty is is that we have spreadsheets 
images sort of floating around in these two off-the-grid kind of places. And in order to, for us to put them, everything online, those spreadsheets have to be integrated into our systems in that way that our customers don't necessarily understand. But I'd welcome those people to sit down <laughs> with them and teach them because yeah. it's just not everybody thinks the same way about things. I, I think that our online systems are really hard to use. Our AdLib system is definitely... Collections Online's all right, but it's not. They're doing a second version of it, which is going to be a lot better. But if you're looking at archives a lot of the time, you're looking for something really, really specific, and it's quite hard to drill down like that into Collections Online. We haven't got a lot of data on, on this AdLib system. Mm-hmm. And so um, what we've, we've started to do to save us time is... For a whole collection description, we just publish it straight onto Collections Online from Mimsy. Mm-hmm. We don't copy and paste and stick it into the other system because we don't have time. Right, um, fair enough. And basically, what a lot of what we're doing in my team, because we're so, there's not as many as, as, as there used to be, um, we're trying to do projects that have the most amount of impact possible that we can do with the amount of um, stuff that we've got. Um, so basically, Copying and pasting information from one system to another is not a useful um, like use of our time. So we've just been firing stuff out into collections online from from Minzy over the last few months Mm. and doing things like finding orphaned images on our um, on our media library and and matching them up and publishing them because we found that we have an awful lot of digitised images that are just there in the back end of our media library system, but they're not published just because someone hasn't clicked the button. Wow. So we're doing that and it's, it's yeah. meaning that we're really, really increasing the amount of digital stuff online, but it's not especially targeted, really. Mm-hmm. Um, this issue is closely linked with the complexities of digital preservation when the team decides to digitise things and put them online. Here's Olivia Weeks, Associate Archivist for Audiovisual Collections at NRM, explaining things from her perspective. People are like, we'll just digitise everything, make everything available. But as soon as you digitise something, it's almost harder to to look after than it was in its physical form Mm -hmm. because um, you immediately have to transfer it over to some sort of digital preservation system because software becomes obsolete, file formats becomes obsolete, they are corrupted... There's a whole new host of problems, which people don't really, unless you're in digital preservation, you don't realise. Um, and also, obviously, we spoke about all the legal and like ethical inf- implications about dealing with people's data and information in a different way and copying it, because that's kind of what you're doing. Mm. So it's it's a whole different ballgame. Digital preservation comes in because you have to migrate things from format to format you'll have a system in place and it will migrate the files to the newest format when it comes out so you have to be really careful as to what you start with so there will be um standardized formats so we don't accept any file audio format other than wav because it's uncompressed but yeah it's just you have to start with the biggest most uh, f- the fullest file format you can because mm. over time you get bit rot, things kind of might be get corrupted, so it gets kind of not smaller and smaller, but if you start with the biggest, it'll last the longest basically. Mm. So, um, digital preservation is 
it's a it's a difficult topic because like you said everything's always changing things going obsolete um like you've mentioned with the mini discs they mm. were such they it, it was going to be the next big thing wasn't it mini discs mm. they were they were going to they were like the bee's knees and then it was such a short-lived kind of format it was i think i can't remember when it was like mid 90s or something The final element that makes up Alison's complex and often hidden digital labour involves balancing the needs of users and visitors to Search Engine with the strategic aims for digitisation desired by the group. While I was spending time with the team at Search Engine, I was fortunate to chat with Keith and Ian, two volunteers from the Caledonian Railway Association. This group was formed in 1983 to further the study of all aspects of the Caledonian Railway, a major Scottish railway company formed in the early 19th century, which formed a link between English railways and Glasgow. We just happen to be Scottish, but all of the old railway companies have a fan club, basically. Mm. Um, That's Ian. Here he is again talking about the importance of digitising NRM's photographic collection for him. In, in my world, all of that stuff would be publicly digitally available. Mm-hmm. I would be able to log into National Railway Museum photograph, photographic archive, get a decent quality thumbnail or shrunken image, If I wanted to buy it for commercial purposes, there'd be an ordering connection to that. Mm -hmm. If I just wanted to look at it and see what photos were available, I'd be able to view it with a a watermark through it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And it would be competently catalogued and searchable. Mm -hmm. Now, that obviously is an absolutely vast undertaking. And if we can build some sort of hybrid between voluntary organisations who have the knowledge Mm. and some of the skills and the museum to get access to the material and get it it digitised. The digitising isn't the hard part. Digitising is just time-consuming and tedious. It's involving cameras and scanners. As with many other groups visiting the Search Engine Archive at National Railway Museum, these volunteers have established their own digitising practice specific to the area of the collection they are most interested in. Here's Keith describing the process. Um, And there's a voluntary organisation at a railway museum in Kidderminster, Mm -hmm. attached to the Seven Valley Railway, which had developed a a system using a commercial database and we were able to um, develop our own debate database based on that. Wow. Uh, we, had, yeah, we had various things. Um, so the actual copying is one job, and then uh, entering all the information on the database in terms of uh, and putting a description to it, identifying it. It's a commercial software. Yeah. And you, you set your own, I mean, it's a, it's a framework, mm-hmm. and you set your own database create your own database. I'll show you it, shall I? I'd love that, yeah. And is this the one that the Kidderminster Museum, they were... They started, yes, and we've adapted it. And I thought I'd put that one up, because I think that's a lovely photograph. So can you just describe what we're looking at? Right. It's it's Gavin Wilson's daughter. Oh, oh, right, yes. So here's an engine here, and it's coming up along the track, and it's a crossing loop. Yeah. And you have a single-line tablet for the... 
to allow you to go onto the, there's a, t- a tablet to allow you to go onto a single line. Right. And you, that's the authorization for the driver to go. So sure he gets to a, nobody's coming the other direction. Yeah. Basically. And he gets to a crossing loop, so he's got to exchange it. Okay. And this is an automatic device for doing it. So you've got one in. You've got a little arm comes out for the engine, and you've got a tablet there. Mm-hmm. And here's the signal when he has to hold the the, the device forward towards the, the train mm-hmm. and that's the photographer's daughter <laughs> oh how nice and when was <laughs> and this you, and you see the cigarette in the <laughs> oh gosh it's about 1947 it's 1948-49 uh, has it got a date on right that one has yeah 1952 in fact so there's the basic that's the way we've, we, we 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 had a lot of discussion about how you describe these I um, I would t- turn up and take 250 photographs on a setup like that, not necessarily particularly looking at all of them unless they caught my eye because of my own interests. Mm. But then they go off and other people will, will look at them and, uh, and sort them out and catalogue them. So it, it covers a range of interests from uh, the actual technical side, you know, I take pictures, I enjoy it, um, through to various people's different aspects of railway knowledge to uh, to sort the assemblage out. Mm. There's a, a huge resource there if you can find the way to balance what the museum wants, or at least what the museum needs rather than what it wants, I guess, <laughs> and what the volunteers are prepared to do. Yeah. The museum had said to us that we could carry on, but if we were to do any more, we'd have to do whole collections. The enthusiasm of Keith and Ian is evident here and helps highlight that digital labour within the museum takes many unexpected forms. For Alison's team, whilst volunteers have historically been vital for effectively supporting the documentation of acquisition backlogs, their endeavours can be tricky when striving to embed new digital standards required for getting collections online. We've now got loads and loads of digital images on our shared drives that are like the drawings, they're kind of... They're not attached to anything. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a PDF Excel list or stuff floating, but they're not in our systems. And so these guys have got what they wanted, and they've got to see their favourite thing, an exclusive look at their favourite thing, and have an amazing time here. Um, but what are we getting on it? Because we've, we've, we will eventually be able to put that stuff online, but it will just be about Scotland. So they've put the images that they're taking into an, another system <laughs> that is not an SMG system called FileMaker, okay. which they share with the, their members of the Cardinal Association. So, it must um, be quite hard when you've got all these really enthusiastic yeah. people wanting to do stuff very quickly, but yeah. like you said, there's it's, no plan, there's no integration. It's so hard. The digital labour of the volunteers appears here to be sometimes imperfectly aligned with the digital labour of staff in the museum and the things that the museum is seeking to achieve. Could we go as far as to suggest that sometimes one intensifies the other? At root in the three overlapping elements of Alison's work, the sheer abundance of stuff in the archive, the complicated digital legacies, the competing digitisation agendas is a commitment, above all else, to use technology as an enabler for telling the social history of railways, for telling accessible stories about the people who worked on them, were passionate about them, or who had their lives impacted by them in some way or another. Um, Oh, God, just while we're here, this is a new acquisition. 
we're getting in three bits and this is um from a man called james tors who um is a really really eccentric donor i mean most a lot of our donors are really really eccentric the people that we deal with but he uh, i'm so very fond of him but he's a very funny man um but basically he um he was a guard on br um, in the 70s, his mum got him a job to keep him out of trouble. Um, and they gave him a little book to write all his journeys in when he was on the train. Um, and he didn't like being a guard, but he really liked the book. <laughs> um, but we acquired it just because it's just yeah. so more... You can get at it from so many different ways. It tells lots of really accessible stories about what things are like. There's really good images. There's loads of it, isn't there? But it's not catalogued onto any kind of system. It's not digitised. There's an outline description about paragraph that long on our website at the moment. So it's going to be a big job to make it accessible, basically. Mm -hmm. So we keep on getting this stuff. And there's no way we already have this stuff because, I mean, we just... (laughs) Um, But we're kind of adding to our problem. But this guy's getting old. We can't say, you know, we have to wait for another 10 years until we can find... Because we'll lose contact with him and he's already drawn us loads of maps of where we have to go when he's died and stuff. While Alison is carefully balancing many overlapping demands when it comes to the drive for digitisation of the collection that she is custodian of, there remains a commitment to telling a people's history of NRM's archive and to using digitisation in a strategic way to tell stories of locomotion enthusiasts such as James Tours. It reminded me of something Sophie said to me when she was talking about the research agenda of the museum. If we're thinking about this from a museological point of view, if we're pushing for the kind of public-facing stuff being, I need you to feel like you are included in this, to humanise the railways and therefore find relatability, we should also be doing that in our research. And clearly that is what is happening. It means that what we're doing at least has hopefully has some impact in as you said hopefully people feeling more comfortable learning about technology Mm. and finding themselves and people and more than just here's the technical info obviously Mm. there are people that love technical info and I have absolutely no no qualms with that but I think it's one of it's technology in all its forms is one of those that I think more people are quick to say oh I'm not interested in that or I don't know anything about that Mm. But I think largely that's untrue, particularly in a 21st century context. Like, you will have come into contact with it at some point, at least in the British sphere. Mm. To put it simply, what Sophie and Alison helped me to see is that the challenge for them is using technology in strategic, interesting and agile ways to tell a better, more relevant people's story of technology. Sorry if that all sounds a bit meta. From these interviews, I started to understand that hidden digital labour, and I know we've still got more work to do unpicking exactly what that means, at least in this museum, is ultimately in the service of an ambition to make railway history more interesting, relatable and accessible for new audiences. This was certainly the case when I spoke to Tanya Parker, another associate archivist at the NRM. Tanya has been working on cataloguing, fully digitising and researching NRM's Raysbeck archive. 
Leonard Raisbeck was a lawyer, landowner and businessman and a key figure in lobbying for the Stockton and Darlington Railway. His archive was unresearched and held in private hands until the NRM bought it in 2019 and contains correspondence, legal documents and family papers. It will be the first NRM archive to be fully digitised and the desire is for it to be made as accessible and well-researched as possible. Tanya and her team have been working to get the entire collection of over 250 items of varying size made up of thousands of pages catalogued and digitised. So it has his family legal papers and he was they were quite a sort of prominent family in Stockton so he obviously used this position to advance the the case for um a railway over a canal you know he used, used his social prominence for that uh, but he also has the papers of the sugar house which is a sugar mill in Stockton mm. obviously in the late 18th century the sugar would have come from a slave plantation in mm. the Caribbean in the family papers it's like you know there's things like receipts from a pub um to 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 like his the deeds for his house and then in the sugar house thing i mean it's got like all the the cash books all the accounts but it's also got like the fire insurance ones and some sort of like life insurance things for the like the society for laudable widows and then there's all the railway stuff as well um so there was a quite an early survey by john rennie who did a lot of he built lots of canals and he, he raised back um sort of it was a correspondent with him and was kind of misunderstanding and it's like oh by the way you've got to survey for a railway as well as a canal and he's like oh if i knew that i would have done completely different but i'll just come up with some bigger sort of thing <laughs> so it's it's nice because it's quite although it's it's nearly all textual you can really get the human element from it and i mean like in the latest stuff the stuff like the sort of Darlington accounts and it's just mm. like a note at the start saying, oh, you have to do this, this and this. But they're just kind of like completely making it up. But that's what you do when you change the world. You just you just wing it. <laughs> you sort of feel like I know Leonard of Aisbeck, even yeah. though it's, um, it's a tricky collection. Because I think because it's such a high profile point, people want want it to be something. And it, I don't want to say because people are like, oh, well, Tanya, you know, because you, you've done it. And... I, I don't really want to let them down. <laughs> you know, like, it is what yeah. it is. And yeah. it might not have lots of references to locomotion number one, but it is still a really great archive, and you've got to take it on its own terms. Um, I'm sort of facilitating the digitisation, so uh, I'm deciding what to send to the studio and when, and when they've done the shots, I go through them on Media Library. I haven't actually had time, but mm. just to check that they're OK. Digitising the Raisbeck archive has exposed, in a positive way, the different concerns of people in the museum and the division of labour involved in undertaking something of this scale and complexity. It's realising that um, we all have a different emphasis in some ways. So as archivists, primarily we're interested in the content. Obviously, we have to be interested in the physical preservation and the digitisation of it mm. because that's you know, that's part of it. The sort of archival mission is preservation and access. But conservation, obviously, are primarily interested in the conservation of the items. Um, although they, because they're doing conservation for digitisation, they have to think about that too. And obviously, I suppose they don't think about the content so much. But then the studio, obviously, they're, they're mostly thinking about the images because yeah. they're, they're a photographer, not the sort of content, which is the metadata or... The, the conservation again which is 
it's, it's sort of working together in a team, but it's realising that you have different emphases and sort of concerns and it's only, you know, together that we can do it, we're able to do it really. So I've been doing some cataloguing of items that are going to conservation onto Bimsy so that they can record the work. So it's, mm-hmm. it, as I say, everyone's got their part to play. So. This process of digitising, whilst revealing the multifaceted forms of labour involved in documenting, cataloguing and recording an archive in detail, has provided the opportunity to see a different, more people-centred story behind a locomotive collection. At the same time, it has exemplified why it would be impossible to digitise everything in NRM's collection and the need for strategic decision-making when it comes to digitisation. Railways without people because they need to drive the trains yeah. and get on them, sort of thing. Um, but I think we need to. Certainly, I hope that's something which will come out in Vision Twenty Twenty Five. I have I have no input into it, but um, I think that will be really good because we have all the stuff on the floor. Yeah, the the vehicles and you know they just have so such great stories attached to them. Often in our which you can find in our archives and about people and stuff. But that's at the moment they're sort of very scantily interpreted i mean certainly like the raised pack we can't do, we're doing it fully like we're doing the backs of pieces of paper which are blank and you i mean you've walked around our sores so we can't do it for uh we can't do it you know for every single piece of paper that we have in our archive mm. because it will be millions and millions of things and i can't even conceive of how many years that's going to be <laughs> we can't collect everything and we can't digitise mm. everything. It's an interesting one, but then we're doing the absolute utmost for this one collection. It, it mm. is three boxes of stuff. It's just over 250 items, which is not a lot. Resourcing is really going to be a challenge going forward if we're going to really go hard for digitisation, I think. Firstly, item cataloguing, and then actually digitizing it there's one photographer oh so it's not just yeah digitization of 2d material we need more stuff <laughs> doing it if, yeah. we're, if we're gonna go if we're gonna go for mm. digitizing large collections we do really need more people kind of working on it and doing the processing although we have quite a lot of accession backlog even that is in some ways if you can see a sort of com- com- like a contributing activity towards digitization Tanya is pragmatic about what is possible in her role as associate archivist. Yeah, I'm just trying to do what I can. Mm. Um, for example, with Clapham cataloguing, I'm cataloguing in a way that if I don't, it doesn't doesn't get extended. Then at least they have a file list, and it's like it's nice IG compliant um, mm. catalog. <laughs> you can't have the one without the other. You can't have people without trains. You can't have digitalization without you know opportunities and challenges. <laughs> there you go. That's that's literally quote of the day, Tanya, thank you. My time with the search engine team reminded me of something Jessica Bradford, keeper of collections engagement, who we heard from in the last episode, had said to me about the agenda of the Science Museum group in terms of using digital to achieve more depth in their collections rather than always breadth. The shift is very much away from the creation of micro-exhibitions or very closed curatorial narratives online Mm -hmm. to um, presenting a broader base of information about our collections. And it feels, I suppose in some ways, quite indulgent. It feels at least 
very freeing and um, a massive opportunity not to have the pressure on us to produce the sort of essentially the icing on the cake but to bake the cake and that's what we're doing if we sit with what jessica is saying a moment longer here it validates why some of the tricky decisions around digitization which alison tanya and olivia are having to make are so important as mentioned in the previous episode this is a critical moment of systems thinking for the institution where there is an increasing sharpening of the group's agenda to use digital to surface rich, people-centred stories about their collection, rather than anything else. We have seen that this work, however, involves a lot of hidden digital labour, a kind of digital labour where emotionality, sensitivity and care are of utmost importance if the Science Museum group wants to take all of its museum communities with it on this journey. Next, in the second of these two episodes, I'll be turning to a different but linked kind of hidden digital labour that I found at Science Museum Group. Thank you for listening. See you here next time on The Hidden Constellation. You've been listening to The Hidden Constellation, presented by me, Dr Sophie Frost. Voice actors are Chris Thorpe-Tracy, Reefa Thorpe-Tracy, Ben Murray and Stephen Orchard. Sound design and editing is by Chris Thorpe-Tracy of Lo-Fi Arts. My thanks go to everyone who participated in this episode, and most of all to the Science Museum Group, for their time and generosity in letting me ask lots of questions for well over a year. This podcast has been created as part of the One by One Research Initiative, led by the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for listening. Don't fly up.